Welcome to the third season of Murder in 20 podcast, where I, Bobby Stevens, am your host with a new episode every Wednesday. If you're a serious fan of true crime and love listening to podcasts, but don't want all that small talk, you've come to the right place. We get right to the facts. Murder in 20 episodes are concise and complete in 20 minutes. Less talk and more true crime. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Thanks for tuning in. Carl Millard founded Millard Air in 1954 and using a fleet of vintage airplanes, grew his business into a sizable and profitable company based out of the Pearson International Airport in Toronto, Canada. His company transported freight and occasionally passengers. If you've ever watched the TV show Ice Pilots, then you can picture the airplanes. His son Wayne became a pilot and worked in the family business. The National Post reported that he married Madeline, a flight attendant, and together they had one child, Dylan, who was named after his grandmother Del. Growing up, Dylan joined his father flying, sitting on a stack of cushions on the co-pilot seat. Like his father and grandfather, Dellen got his pilot's license. At the young age of 14, he set a record for being the youngest pilot to fly solo. And not just in an airplane. He also flew a helicopter on the same day. In the 1970s, the company was doing well. But as his planes got older, the family was hesitant to invest the money needed for new planes. So they stopped flying and shifted the company's focus to parts and sales. After high school, Dallin decided to go in a different direction and went to college to become a chef, but later dropped out. When he was 21, his grandfather passed away and the family business was handed down to Dallin and his father. Dylan had dabbled in drugs, but now began delving into harder drugs, always looking for that next big high, the next big thrill. He was drawn to the seedier elements in town and began committing criminal acts, beefing up his persona of a rich, bad boy. That's how he met Mark Smitch, a local petty criminal who made videos and was into gangster rap. Dylan joined a couple other friends in setting two cars on fire and robbing a convenience store. He stole a trailer, and when police pursued him, he outran them. Dylan began trafficking drugs and installed a device on his vehicle that allowed him to easily switch license plates. Dylan didn't participate in the company. Instead, he got a tattoo on his wrist with the word ambition and rocked a mohawk haircut dyed bright pink. His father changed the direction of the company and was now providing airplane maintenance. In 2011, while his father was running things, Dylan went racing in the Baja 500. 
an off-road desert rally held in Mexico's Baja California Peninsula. He also traveled the world with his friends to Alaska, Greece, and France. He owned a bungalow in Maple Gate, a suburb of Toronto, and set it up as a party place for his friends. Large TVs and Xboxes offered a fun time for his fellow criminals. In May 2011, he purchased a farm in Air for just over $800,000. There was no house, but it came with a barn and a large field bordered by a swamp and trees. Dylan began dating Laura Babcock, a young woman with a beautiful smile, chocolate brown hair, and a vibrant personality. At 23, she had recently graduated university with a degree in English and drama and had aspirations of becoming an actress. But she was also dealing with anxiety and depression, two things she could not escape. Even though she sought help many times at the local hospital, Laura had a large circle of friends and kept in touch often with all of them. She didn't like her parents' rules, including curfew, so she packed a suitcase and couch surfed with friends. Eventually, the couple broke up. Dylan began dating Christina Nudga, but Laura was never completely out of the picture, and this annoyed Christina. So Dylan promised her he'd get rid of her. Court records revealed that on April 17, 2012, he texted Christina, I'm going to hurt her. I'll make her leave. Dylan bought an illegal handgun and made an unusual purchase. An industrial incinerator called the Eliminator. On July 3rd, he texted Laura, and she answered. That evening, she met up with Dylan at a subway station, and they went to his house. At 7 o'clock, she checked her voicemails. It's not known exactly what happened, but all of a sudden, Laura was gone. Her phone went silent. The next day, the incinerator was delivered. Dylan made a note in his calendar for July 7th to do a smell check on the barn. A couple weeks later, he searched the internet for the correct temperature for cremation. That night, Laura was cremated. Mark took Laura's suitcase and iPad, which he used to compose a rap song. The bitch started off for skin and bones. Now the bitch lay on some ashy stone. Last time I saw her was outside the home. And if you go swimming, you can find her phone. A few weeks after she disappeared, Laura's ex-boyfriend, Sean Lerner, 
set out to find her and checked her cell phone records. He noticed that her last eight phone calls were to Dellen. He took the phone records to police, but they did nothing and never even bothered to question Dellen. Later that summer, Mark performed his song for a couple of friends and admitted that he had killed a woman and burned her body. But neither friend reported it to police. Dylan continued his life of crime and contacted friends with a scheme to import drugs to Canada. Meanwhile, Dylan's parents divorced. Wayne then ran into Janet, a woman he dated years earlier, and the two began dating. Wayne had given up the company's expensive hangar at the Toronto airport and moved the business to a new hangar at the nearby airport in Waterloo, where he employed 16 staff. As reported in the Toronto Star, Wayne sunk some of his own money into it, taking a mortgage out on his home, in addition to a mortgage on the warehouse, and getting a multi-million dollar business loan. Wayne was driving the family business far into debt, and Dellen wasn't happy. And Wayne wasn't happy with his son. He told one of his employees that he was going to cut Dellen off because he was shirking his responsibilities at the company and spending too much money. On November 28th, Wayne told one of his workers that he had his first customer lined up and was optimistic the company was going to be viable and that he would have something to leave to Dellen. The next day, Wayne spent hours talking to Janet on the phone as they made plans for her upcoming birthday. Meanwhile, Dellen was at Mark's house. That evening, he said he had a date and headed out. Dellen drove to his father's home and arrived at 1 a.m. He let himself in and crept down the hallway to his bedroom. His father was sound asleep. Dellen took out the gun he'd bought, raised his arm up, gripped it tight, and pointed it at his dad's left eyelid and fired. The bullet lodged in his brain. Wayne was dead at 71. Dellen tucked the gun in between the mattress and the dresser to make it look like a suicide. At 6 a.m., he left the house, went back to Mark's, and made a point of waking him up to tell him he was back. That afternoon, Dylan returned to his father's home and pretended to discover his body and called police and his mother. Police arrived to a sobbing Madeline and a stoic Dellen. Wayne was laying on his left side, with his right arm bent and his hand tucked beneath his cheek. An hour later, the coroner arrived and discovered the bullet wound and the gun. Officers were quick to assume it was a suicide 
and ruled out foul play. Immediately, Dellen changed the locks at Millard Air, called a staff meeting, told them he was shutting down the company, and fired them all. Five months later, in the spring of 2013, Dellen was looking to add to his real estate portfolio and buy a condo in Toronto's historic distillery district. And he was also shopping for a pickup truck. Although he had more than enough money to buy anyone he wanted, he was looking for some excitement. So he and Mark devised a plan to steal one. On May 5th, they answered an ad online and met up with the owner to take the truck for a test drive. The Standard newspaper reported that they showed up at the seller's place of business. Mark was 5'9 with a slim build, and Dellen was 6'1 and 180 pounds, with the word ambition tattooed on his wrist. Realizing that he was larger than either of them, the seller agreed to go for a drive. Rudellen and Mark boarded their plan. The size of the man likely scared them off. The next day, they found another ad online for a black Dodge Ram diesel and called the phone number listed. Tim Bosma answered that call and agreed to meet them at 9 p.m. that night. Dellen picked up Mark. As they neared Tim's house, they parked around the corner and turned off the cell phone. Mark slid a handgun into the front pocket of his hoodie. The two walked a few steps to Tim's house. Tim stood in the driveway, turned to his wife Charlene, smiled and said, I'll be right back. Dylan climbed behind the wheel, and Tim slid into the passenger seat. Mark sat in the back seat. Dylan said he wanted to see how the truck handled on the highway, so Tim suggested they take it to Highway 403. Once on the highway, Mark reached into his pocket and pulled out the gun. But Tim was quick and grabbed it. In the struggle, the gun went off. Tim was dead at 32. The men drove Tim's truck back to his neighborhood and picked up Dellen's vehicle. Mark got behind the wheel and followed Dellen. An hour later, as they drove through Brantford, Dellen suddenly realized Tim had a cell phone with him. He pulled over and tried to take it out of its case, but panicked when it wouldn't and threw it out the window. Then he retrieved a flashlight from his vehicle and searched Tim's truck in case it had GPS. They drove to the hangar at the airport where Dellen had the incinerator stored. They fired it up and throughout the night, it ran hot cremating Tim's body. By midnight, when Tim hadn't returned, Charlene was scared. She knew something was definitely wrong and called police. 
Immediately they responded and began searching for Tim. The next day, 27-year-old Dellen purchased a condo for over $600,000. Friends and family launched a huge social media campaign to find the young husband and father. Over the next four days, 150 officers searched for Tim by air and ground. Using phone records, they identified the phone number that had called Tim and discovered the phone had made another call a day earlier. They tracked down the seller of the truck and he provided police with the clue they needed. He recalled the tattoo, Ambition. That led police to Dellen. Police located Tim's truck, parked in a trailer, and they located the incinerator, which had been moved to his farm. Forensic testing found Tim's DNA on the outside, and inside, they found two male human bones that were consistent with Tim's age. Five days after Tim's murder, Dellen was arrested and charged with first-degree murder. Eleven days later, Mark was also arrested and charged with first-degree murder. In his possession, police recovered Laura's suitcase and iPad. Both men pled not guilty. Police now decided to take another look at Dellen's father's death. Upon further investigation, it was discovered that Wayne was left-handed. And based on how his body was found with his left arm tucked underneath him and the lack of gun residue, it was determined that he couldn't have shot himself. The gun was tested for DNA, and lo and behold, they found Dellen's. He was charged with first-degree murder of his father. Dellen and Mark were also charged with Laura's murder. Tim's murder trial was the first to take place. Three years later, in June 2016, Dellen and Mark pointed the finger at each other, claiming the other had been the one to pull the trigger. The trial lasted 56 days and included 172 pieces of evidence and 92 witnesses. After four days of deliberation, the jury reached a verdict. Dylan sat in the courtroom with a smile on his face until the jury announced, Guilty. Then his smile disappeared. Dylan and Mark were both sentenced to life in prison with no parole for 25 years. Six months later at Laura's murder trial, they were both found guilty and sentenced to life in prison with no parole for 25 years. This meant they now had to each serve 50 years before being eligible for parole. Another six months went by and in June 2018, Dellen went on trial for his father's murder. He was found guilty and sentenced to another life term in prison 
with no parole for 25 years. 33-year-old Dylan, who was one murder shy of becoming a serial killer, must serve 75 years before being eligible for parole. After Tim's trial, CTV News reported that outside the courtroom, Tim's widow Charlene smiled and hugged supporters and stated, It is their own unspeakable evil acts that have taken away their freedom. Thanks for listening to Murder in 20 with less talk and more true crime. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday for the episode of Shirley Turner. She was incredibly smart and driven. Anything she wanted, she got. She left two husbands and three children behind to become a doctor. She dated younger men, but when they rejected her, she sought the ultimate revenge. If you're dying to hear more, past episodes of Murder in 20 are available for free at murderin20.com and on all major podcast platforms. We love what we do and are dying to continue. If you enjoy listening to Murder in 20 every week, we'd be eternally grateful for your support by visiting Murder in 20 at Patreon, PayPal, or murderin20.com. We'd like to acknowledge Purple Planet for use of their music, sound effects and fasting studios and quick sounds, and our many editorial sources who are listed on our website. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Stay safe, sleep with the lights on, and don't play with strangers.